0: What is currently happening on the front lines of Russian-Ukrainian war? Is Ukraine progressing with its counteroffensive? Does it have a chance to win this war? And what does it need for that? Are we moving closer to ensuring Ukraine's security better in the international context? You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yarmolonko, I am Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of ukraineworld.org. My guest is Fredrik Weslow, a Swedish diplomat and analyst who has been working for many years in Ukraine. Weslow is a distinguished policy fellow at the Stockholm Center for Eastern European Studies. He has previously worked for the UN, EU and OSCE in Kosovo, South Caucasus, Sudan, South Sudan. Until December 2022. He worked in Kiev as deputy head of the EU advisory mission in Ukraine. Frederick has also worked as director of the wider Europe program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support our work at Patreon.com/UkraineWorld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our regular volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal.ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Frederick Weslaw, welcome to this podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, so let's talk about a little bit about security and uh, what is going on. First, when you look at the current situation on the front line, we are in late August 2023. What can you say to our listeners across the world? What is happening, in your opinion?
1: Well, I mean, we are several weeks into the counter-offensive. Um, I think there is progress. It's slow. But there is still quite substantial progress, especially in the south. I think in the past few days as well, we've seen um, Ukrainian armed forces uh, breaking through and, and uh, breaking through the first line and then now you know, hammering away at the second line. Um, and this is quite, uh, quite significant. Um, I think there is a, there is a, a problem about unrealistic and, and very high expectations, in a sense, globally. I mean, the counteroffensive was uh, long in the making, got a lot of attention even before it uh, it started. So a lot of people, especially outside of Ukraine, expected it to be a sort of a three-week affair and then the whole thing would be over. But but this is not the nature of this war and of this counteroffensive. So this will drag on. But I think um, this progress uh, we see in the south is very, is very promising.
0: And Russians have very well prepared, right? So they established at least three defensive lines. They they have put minefields, they have put uh, lots of trenches. So uh, they're also learning. They took the time of certain you know, delays in supplies of the weapons and they took the battle for Bakhmut also for preparing in the south. And yeah, we should be realistic that this will
1: not uh, be very quick. Right? No, exactly. And I mean, you mentioned... The delays, and I think this is um, a, a big mistake that, that uh, Ukraine's Western partners have made. That um, the provision of weapons of ammunition has been, um, frankly, delayed, uh, which has meant that the Russians had extensive time to to dig in, um, and create these uh, lines of defense, as you say.
0: So uh, when we talk about like security framework, security umbrella, you. You, you lived a lot in Ukraine, right? And uh, you were actually, you lived in Ukraine for four years? Four and a half years. Yeah. Four and a half years working for EU institutions, EU advisory mission.
1: And uh, you actually lived until the full-scale invasion, right? Is yeah. that correct? No, that's right. Um, I mean, I was living in Ukraine with my family when, when the war started. And um, I, I was evacuated, but then returned uh, to Lviv in uh, March last year, and then to Kiev in, in April last year. And was basically in Kiev for most of, uh, yeah, until the end of 2020.
0: Yeah, so you, you, you know very well the mood yeah. which is in Ukraine. You have lots of Ukrainian friends. And there is some, time, some kind of discrepancy if we look at the NATO summit in Vilnius. Uh, so, um, my impression is that many like European-American partners didn't understand why Ukrainians were so frustrated. Uh, do you see this discrepancy in, in attitudes towards what is going on around security around NATO?
1: I, I do. I think there is a, a discrepancy, as, as you say. Um, of course, you know you need to look at the history of this, so you had the, 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 the Bucharest summer where Ukraine and Georgia were promised membership, right? 2008. 2008, so, you know, a long time ago. Um, But since then, Ukraine has basically been blocked from moving forward on on membership. And then you had the the full-scale invasion in February last year. Um, And this sort of changed, I think, the whole geopolitical context and, and, uh, you know, the fundamentals of European security, in a sense. Um, and, you know, it became so clear that um, these sort of grey zones in between NATO and Russia were no longer, if they ever were, in a sense, you know, um, a contributor of stability and and. and uh, uh, yeah, of stability, but rather of instability because it, it always opened up for the threat of, of Russian aggression. And I mean, this is why Sweden and Finland um, are joining NATO now because the whole calculation changed fundamentally for them. And, and it's even more true for Ukraine, of course, to be outside of NATO. Um, is not only, you know, causes insecurity for Ukraine, but also instability for, for, for Europe. So even somebody like Henry Kissinger, you know, the arch-realist, who has long been arguing that oh, Ukraine should just be a buffer zone between the West and Russia, has now changed his opinion, is arguing that actually NATO membership for Ukraine is the only way to stabilize the situation in, in, in Europe. And he also argues that it's actually in Russia's interest, at the end of the day, that Ukraine is, is is a member of uh, of NATO, so I think um, you know you've seen some um, European countries like France. You know, President Macron has has really shifted um, on his view of NATO membership for for Ukraine, and and as, so as many others. But still, countries like Germany and 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 the U.S. Um, are still quite reluctant. I think this is. This explains a little bit the outcome in Vilnius uh, at the NATO summit in July um, this year and the sort of, you know, to some extent, the unsatisfactory declaration that came out of the the NATO NATO summit.
0: What would you reply to those who say that Ukraine's membership in NATO will bring in the Third World War
1: because it will lead to a conflict between NATO and Russia? Look, I think it's rather the opposite. You know, if, if there's anything that Russia respects, and fears, it's NATO, led by the US and, and, you know, NATO under the US nuclear umbrella. So in a sense, bringing Ukraine into NATO would be a way to prevent escalation, to prevent, you know, further, further conflict. So I think it, it's, it's the other way around. You know, I, I don't for a minute believe that um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine was sort of sparked by um, Ukraine's desire to enter NATO. Actually it's, it's sort of the other way. The other way around here, here as well. Um, but you know, from Moscow's point of view, they saw that NATO membership for Ukraine would be an obstacle to their imperial ambitions in Ukraine and in, uh, in the neighbourhood.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. So it's not the NATO enlargement that they fear, they fear the problems for their own enlargement, right? So they want to in, in, or re-enlarge their, their empire, they want to shift borders. And uh, NATO enlargement for them is a problem because it, it doesn't, doesn't let them uh, do that. There were lots of talks about additions to that or alternatives to that, like what are the security arrangements I was thinking about. And one of them uh, was a, an idea called Kyiv Security Compact. And I know that you're dealing with this uh, topic quite in detail. so. What is it? Does it have a perspective? Is it an alternative to NATO or
1: just a supplement to uh, towards the NATO uh, progress? So, yeah, indeed, you know, I'm, I'm a senior advisor at uh, Rasmussen Global, which is under Fogh Rasmussen's consultancy. And it's a, um, um, uh, you know, so Anders Fogh Rasmussen, the former secretary general of NATO, and Andrei Yermak, the head of the presidential administration in Kiev last summer, um, developed this key of security compact. So it's, it's, a, um, it's, a, it's a sort of set of proposals of how um, Western partners can support Ukraine um, in the long term. Um, you know, the notion of security guarantees has been mentioned, but I think it's more accurate to talk about security commitments from, from Western partners to um, provide Ukraine with military assistance over time. And so um, this, uh, this package was developed last summer, the, the idea, the concept was developed last summer with, um, you know, with the involvement of some very high profile um, European and American thinkers. Um, and then um, it came to fruition uh, and at the Vilnius Summit this year, um, in the sidelines, uh, this joint declaration was, was signed um, by the G7. And since then, a number of other states have um, signed on to this. I think now there are around 20 states who have signed this this joint declaration. And this joint declaration basically commits these countries to providing military assistance to Ukraine um, for the long term. And um, why is this important? Well, it's it's important because, you know, the West has been providing weapons and ammunition to Ukraine since the beginning of of the the full-scale invasion. But it's been quite piecemeal. It's been, you know, every few months there's been a new Rammstein meeting where they have decided to provide, you know, leopards or, or whatever um, sort of weapon to, to, to Ukraine. Um, but this has been, you know, it's had a very short term perspective in, in, in a sense. Um, so what this declaration does is it really shows that there's a long term commitment. Then when I talk about long term, you know, I'm talking about sort of five, ten plus years Um, in a sense. And this is an extremely important signal as well to Moscow that Western military assistance to Ukraine is steadfast, will not collapse, that that unity will remain over time. Because I think one of you know the sort of the what 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 Moscow is hoping is that Western unity will collapse and our support will diminish over time. But this declaration shows that no, you know, it's actually the, the, the opposite. So the declaration now um, is being followed up with bilateral agreements between Ukraine and these individual countries and also the EU. Um, and these agreements were sort of set out the type of support that these countries will be providing Ukraine over time. And, we, you know, we're talking about modern weapons, we're talking about ammunition, but we're also talking about, uh, you know, training, exercises, intelligence, support on um, countering hybrid warfare, cyber. Um, security and, uh, and so on. So it's really quite a substantial um, package here. And also in, in the EU, I think it's important to talk about the EU, and I, I do so since I, I worked for the, for the EU previously. Um, interestingly enough, since uh, February 22, the EU has perhaps a bit surprisingly become one of the main security providers for Ukraine through um, the the European Peace Facility, which is this uh, facility to buy um, weapons and ammunition for Ukraine. Um, I think to date something like 3.6 billion euros have been spent from the facility on on this. And then also uh, the training mission, um, EU-MAM, which has been training I think now up to sort of 30-35,000 Ukrainian troops um, as well. So, um, you know, the EU, and, and then there's also other things that the EU has done to sort of support uh, Ukraine security and, and help it build up its its military capabilities. So now there is a, a discussion um, in the EU how the EU can also plug into this joint declaration to these security commitments and, and how instead of having a new tranche of, of EPF support every few months, to commit for you know, several years, say four years, uh, for instance, you know, several billion. Um, and this would also be a very strong um, signal to, um, to, to, uh, to Moscow. But there
0: is a question of uh, whether it's legally binding, right? So it's a joint declaration, and for Ukrainians it's a big trauma to have non-legally binding document, which is a Budapest memorandum. Um, of 1994. Uh, so, uh, how how do we deal with that? Uh, because it's it's always about political decisions and security, right? You cannot really write down how many things, how many, how much money you provide each year. So it's it's always about you know negotiations, a capacity, ability to give this or not to give that. We will still have discussions about F-16s, about airplanes, about tanks, etc. Even if we agreements. You-
1: yeah, I, I think that that's a very good question. And obviously with the, with the Budapest Memorandum, there is this um, trauma and this sense of betrayal. And I think, you know, rightly so in, 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 in Ukraine. Um, on the question of, of whether the joint declarations, bilateral agreements and arrangements are, are legally binding, I think the answer is yes and no. Um, you know, the declaration is a political declaration, of course, but then there will be follow-up with these bilateral agreements, arrangements. Some, for some countries, they will be legally binding. For others, they won't be legally binding. But also, and and this is because, you know, different countries have different approaches to to these types of security cooperation um, arrangements or, or agreements. So instead of having a, you know, one size fits all, you know, you will have to have these sort of bilateral um, arrangements with, with each individual um, country. Um, uh, I think it's also um, important to somehow note that, you know, this declaration is not about sending Western troops to fight in Ukraine. I mean, that's, that's not what this, what this commitment is about, but it's really about, you know, ramping up and the, the provision of, of weapons and ammunition over time. And also, as I mentioned, you know, intelligence and training and, and exercises and, and so on. Um, so at the end of the day, of course, you know these are political decisions. Um, but this declaration and these bilateral arrangements will provide a very clear um, political direction. Let me let me put it that way. I think this this is why it's uh, why it's important.
0: And then there is another question, which is raised by, raised by experts, by European experts, Ukrainian experts, American experts. One thing is to give what you have. Another thing is to understand that you need to produce and that Russia is really went into a new type of economy, which is a militarized economy, which is starting produce, producing ammunition, weapons, rockets, missiles, drones, etc. Is there any understanding in, in NATO countries that basically there is a need to start the process to match this? Because as far as I know uh, we have very little ammunition, we have now the I think three million ammunitions, these new ammunitions, the cluster ammunitions from the United States. But if we take the the intensity of fire, I think Ukraine needs about 10,000 ammunitions per day. If you calculate, you understand that <clears throat> even three million is just for one year. What next?
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. You know, Europe needs to massively ramp up production. I mean, you, you mentioned um, Ammunition, um, I think <clears throat> Europe's production of 155 millimeter shells, the sort of NATO standard shells, <coughs> in one year, total production in one year, is what Ukraine uses in one month, right? So this is just a testament to, to the scale of, of the production that's actually needed for Ukraine to be able to um, defend itself. Um, so this is also actually part of, of the joint declaration and, and the security commitments production, also joint production <clears throat> in Ukraine, outside of Ukraine. And I think it's, it's important to note that, you know, since we're talking about long term um, support, uh, we also need to be very imaginative. I mean, what, what threat will Russia pose in five years, in 10 years? because it could look very different from it, what it does today, of course. So these um, bilateral agreements and arrangements will really have to be quite visionary um, to some extent and, and also have provision for you know, production of, of, of things which are, are really cutting-edge, you know, new technologies. We've seen drones, for instance, having, a, having played a massive role in, in, in the war um, currently. I mean, I've seen one figure that at some point Ukraine was losing 10,000 drones a month, which, which is just a, a massive number. Um, so here as well, um, you know, these, these arrangements will have to take into account these sort of new newish uh, technologies as well.
0: And at the same time, there is a question also, and I don't know if it is discussed um, in NATO members, in EU members, that... Russia, uh, well, Ukraine is not the only target of Russia, right? If we follow Russia's declarations from 2021, there's a clear message that we need to reshape European security architecture, meaning that NATO should come back to its borders of 97, right, 96, so before the enlargements, And basically, it's an idea that Europe should be again divided into two parts. One which is aligned with America, another which is aligned with Russia. Uh, So, this was a crazy idea of 21. Uh, uh, NATO said, okay, go away with this idea. Then, Russians attacked Ukraine. Yeah, Russians are failing in Ukraine, but they are also learning. They they mobilized their people, they formed a big army, they went into the militarized economy. So at some point, they will have a capacity to attack NATO member states, uh, EU member states. Is there any calculation about that? Is it any reflection about that?
1: Well, I think <clears throat> at the end of the day, you know, they don't dare attack NATO because of Article 5, because an attack on one NATO state is an attack on, on all. And it would lead to a massive response and, uh, you know, Russia would be the loser in, 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 such, a, in such a scenario. Um, and I think it's, it's clear that, um, you know, NATO is built on, on the principle of, of deterrence. You know, NATO does not want to fight a war with, with Russia, but in order to avoid such a scenario, NATO needs to be very clear and credible about what sort of a response an attack on, on NATO would uh, would entail.
0: Let's hope Let's hope it will happen. Also, let's hope that uh, Ukraine's NATO membership is plausible. Maybe my last question, indeed, will you agree that basically the key obstacle for Ukraine's NATO membership currently is the way how America thinks, the, the American type of thinking? Because what I hear is that... Yes, there is huge commitment to help Ukraine in the United States, but there is also kind of a fear of the defeat of Russia. And there is this idea that we should rather uh, help Ukraine not to lose this war, rather than the decisive victory in this war. Would you agree with us? And, and do, you, do you see any possible changes in this direction?
1: I mean, I think it's sort of absurd to, to think that, or to be afraid of, of Ukrainian victory. I think on the contrary, you know, the more clear and decisive Ukraine's victory is, um, the, the easier it would be to, to handle the sort of the fallout of, of this. Um, I mean, I would be so bold as to make a prediction and my prediction is that uh, Ukraine will become a net member of NATO, um, you know, when, when this war is, is over. Um, I'm, I'm pretty certain about that because what Russia has done is, is really sort of changed the rules of the game, uh, in a sense, and, and uh, you know, these arguments against Ukraine joining NATO are not, they no longer make uh, they no longer make sense. So, if you want to bring stability, if you want to bring security to you know, not only Ukraine but to Europe, you, you have to you have to bring uh, Ukraine into NATO. Frederick Westlow, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, my, my pleasure. pleasure.
0: Explain Ukraine and its serious Thinking in Dark Times. Explain Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. You can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal.ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.